Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, and welcome back to ANWA Deterrence Center's NucleCast. I am your host, Adam Lowther. I am the Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. And today we have Dr. Rob Super with us. Now, many of you probably know of Dr. Super if you don't know him yourself. He is currently a non-resident Senior Associate at the Center for Strategic and International Affairs and Adjunct Professor at Georgetown University Center for Security Studies. Now, in his previous job from 2017 to 2021, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Nuclear and Missile Defense Policy, where he co-directed the Nuclear Posture Review and the Missile Defense Review. So Rob has a great deal of experience in the nuclear world. And before joining uh, the administration and leading those efforts, he was a professional staff member and Republican staff lead for the Senate Subcommittee for Strategic Forces. Now, with that, Rob, I'd like to welcome you into NucleCast. Thanks for joining us. Adam, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, we plan to talk primarily about uh, Slickham in tonight. And one of the things that uh, I wanted to sort of lead off with is you as the lead on the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review were you know, instrumental in ensuring that Slickham in was a recommendation of that NPR. And so if you could just explain for us, what was it about Slickham in that you thought was so critical that it was added to the 2018 NPR. Thanks, Adam. Uh, uh, it's a good, good place to start. You know, when we uh, when, when you conduct a, a posture review, uh, you usually start out with the threat. You know, what's your assessment of the threat, which then leads to your policies and your strategies, and then your your recommendations for forces to support that strategy, right? So, when we conducted our, our threat assessment back in 2017, 2018. Uh, we came to the conclusion that uh, the, 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 the Russian, I should say, the Russian strategic nuclear threat, right, those are the missiles that can reach the U.S. homeland, uh, we, we thought that uh, we had a handle on those, right? It was, they were limited by the New START Treaty, and the, the, all the nuclear modernization programs that were begun by uh, the Obama administration, which included the, uh, the new nuclear ballistic missile submarine, the new uh, ground-based strategic deterrent, that's the ICBM, the B-21 nuclear bomber, and the long-range standoff weapon. We thought that that was a, a robust enough modernization effort to cover the strategic nuclear forces. But what kept us uh, awake at night were those nuclear weapons that were not covered under the New Star Treaty. And here I'm referring to the non-strategic nuclear weapons, sometimes known by your listeners uh, as uh, tactical nuclear weapons or regional nuclear weapons or theater nuclear weapons, right? These are the weapons sure. that are not counted under New Star. And uh, the Russians 
we're deploying, uh, we say at the unclassified level, about 2,000 of these. Now, can you imagine 2,000? The limits for strategic systems under New START were 1,550 warheads. So here they are deploying more tactical nuclear weapons than they're allowed strategic weapons under New START. But it wasn't the, just the numbers that concerned us, Adam. It was the types of systems, right? They, they deploy essentially their own little mini triad of tactical nuclear weapons. They have uh, ground, air, and sea-launched cruise missiles. They have sh short-range, medium-range ballistic missiles. They even have torpedoes and depth charges for their naval forces, right? And they're also on their uh, missile defense systems with uh, nuclear warheads. So the... So we have to ask ourselves, why are they developing this variety of, of uh, nuclear capability? Then we, then we notice that, that their doctrines seem to suggest that they may be inclined to use nuclear weapons in a conflict, in a limited way. This is their so-called escalate to de-escalate uh, strategy, right? But then we also notice that they were exercising to this particular doctrine, right? So they had these huge capabilities. They were talking about using nuclear weapons to escalate out of uh, maybe a failed conventional aggression or a stalemate to get us to back down, right, to coerce us. And so we asked ourselves, why are they doing that? And uh, we didn't come up with a good answer other than the fact that we, we perceived that they believe that our unwillingness to respond to the Russian employment of tactical nuclear weapons with our strategic nuclear weapons gave them an advantage, right? We had the big weapons, but we didn't have the small weapons. And this nope. would provide them an advantage. Let me ask you a question. There's been a lot of discussion about escalate to de-escalate because I've made this a similar argument that this is their doctrine. We, we seem to see it. But there are folks who would counter and say, hey, listen, that's a misinterpretation of Russian doctrine. And, and even if you think it's true, um, you know, maybe it's just, you know, it's public relations purposes. It's, it's nothing that they would ever actually do. Is, is that what y'all, obviously y'all came to the conclusion that that wasn't the case. Yeah. So what, what led you to that? Yeah, well, I mean, if you, if you look at the academic literature and the literature in the strategic community, you'll find, uh, uh, you know, uh, legitimate Russian uh, 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 scholars, Russian strategists who come to different conclusions about this, right? So it, it, it's in a sense, it's, it's a toss-up. So when you don't know exactly what it is, if there are some people who fall on both sides of the issue, now you have to look at the capabilities, right? The, the strategy gets to the intent. The capabilities suggest to you that if they have the capabilities, they could use them in either, either way, right? And so you, you, as, a, as, a, as a practical policymaker, as a nuclear strategist, you have to assume if they have the capabilities and they exercise to that capabilities, right, then there's a chance that they can use it. And whether you call it escalate to de-escalate or not, it, it doesn't matter what you call it. The fact is they have all these tactical nuclear weapons and it seems apparent there's a reason why they spent the money on them, right? If, if they figured all they needed was, was a, a few nuclear weapons to deter us, they could have stuck to their strategic nuclear forces. Instead, they devoted a tremendous amount of effort to, to their tactical nuclear weapons and not just, not just you know, a, like a, a B-61 gravity bomb like we have, but again, torpedoes, surface air missiles, depth charges, 
uh, the whole gamut of capabilities, even as you as you recall, violating the INF Treaty, right, to deploy a, a ground launched uh, a nuclear armed cruise missile. So I wouldn't get I wouldn't get wrapped around the axle over whether or not they have a specific doctrine called escalate to deescalate, but focus more on the capabilities that they're building and uh, the the uh, the exercises they're conducting. And oh, by the way, <laughs> look at the nuclear threats emanating from the Ukrainian conflict. Right, they're threatening to use nuclear weapons. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, Would you say that there are some similarities today, sort of in reverse, in which uh, where we were in, you know, during the Eisenhower administration and, and we relied on the new look policy, which was a you know a nuclear focused uh, deterrent uh, as opposed to, you know, matching the Russians conventionally. Would you say we're sort of in a re situation now? Where that's yeah. the Russian position. Yeah, that, that's a good observation. I mean, we, we were the conventionally inferior power back then, right? So we relied on nuclear weapons, particularly the thousands of tactical nuclear weapons we deployed in NATO to stop the, uh, the Warsaw Pact from invading our allies. Today, Russia arguably is the, um, is the uh, uh, inferior power uh, conventionally. And so Potentially, they're making up for it with the nuclear weapons. But again, this is a complicated assessment because, and I'm, you know, I would have, I, I believe this before Ukraine, given their poor performance in Ukraine, I'm not sure I, I believe it anymore. But you have to understand that e even though uh, they may be uh, overall conventionally inferior, they do have an advantage, a geographic advantage, right? And so the uh, what we worry about is in, in a crisis situation, they could uh, make a grab for one of the. Uh, uh, the NATO countries on the border, say Lithuania or Latvia, right? They would have local conventional superiority, right? And then their strategy is what's called anti-access aerial denial, right? They're going to keep us from reinforcing our allies. They're going to target our bases, our ports, keep those reinforcements from coming in. If they can do that, then they might be able to hold on to what they've just conquered. And then they use nuclear weapons, right? Uh, in uh, to, to coerce us to get us to back down, and if we don't back down, they could even use them uh, uh, again to thwart our ability to reinforce our allies. So, so you, so you're right. It, it is a, a reverse situation. Nuclear weapons tend to be uh, the weapon of the uh, inferior power, right? They use nuclear weapons to compensate for their uh, inferiority. But the calculation becomes uh, very complicated very quickly when you're dealing with a, a country like Russia, I think. Yeah. Now, the, you know, our counter to this, the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review, was the 76 Mod 2. And so we were looking at uh, having low yield variants of the SLBM. And then, of course, one of the other options was the Slickham in. And so we've had a recent statement. Uh, in which the administration, of course, and their their the Biden administration's nuclear posture review, and then we've had um, John Plum, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy, who's in charge of this, and has had some recent testimony. Um, and the administration has essentially said, as part of their nuclear posture review, they're going to kill Slickaman. And one of the big, uh, they've made basically four or five arguments. And one of those is that they won't be, slick them in will not be delivered before 2030. And so therefore it is, you know, it's a useless weapon. Uh, would you concur with that observation or would you take a different position? 
Yeah, well, that that is uh, that's their weakest argument, by the way, and it's strange that they would uh, they would issue it uh, because, quite frankly, if if the weapon is available by 2030, that that could be just on time, right? Because the, the Department of Defense has estimated that China will increase the size of its uh, nuclear arsenal to about a thousand warheads by 2030. That's just about the time when we're really worried about facing two nuclear pairs. So even if it comes in 2030, it's still on time and it's still needed. But, but let me also suggest that uh, the, the 2030 timeframe is if you begin a brand new development program, right? Instead, if you were to say, pers- uh, use the existing conventional Tomahawk land attack missile and make adjustments to that or figure out some way to make the LRSO, which is the long range standoff weapon, which is an air launched weapon that's already being developed for the Air Force. If, if you can use that in the submarine, you can you can speed up these deployment times sure. by maybe two or three years. But the point is that it's, it's not late to need because the need doesn't become uh, super apparent right until 2030 when China now has a thousand nuclear weapons and for all intents and purposes becomes a nuclear peer uh, to the United States. Well, so th- this sort of leads to, you know, a second argument, which is, well, hey, you know, it's it's late to need, but then it's also it's not necessary at all. There's no real need for it whatsoever. Is that an, an argument that has validity? Yeah. So the disarmers will say that there, there's no need for it. What the administration is saying is that there's no need because they have other existing capabilities that can cover the, um, the requirement. And the requirement being here, the ability to deter or counter uh, regional limited nuclear use, right? So what this is interesting, the administration doesn't disagree that we need to be able to counter sure. limited regional nuclear use. I think that's a great thing that they recognize that. So that's good. But what they're saying is that uh, given the additional cost of the LRS, uh, I mean, of the, of the SLICA men, um, we don't need it because we have uh, F, you know, dual capable fighters that can carry the D-61 gravity bomb. That's the F-35A, which we have deployed in Europe, right? They also argue that, well, you could fly a B-52 bomber with uh, air-launched cruise missiles or its, its follow-on, the LRSO, and, and, and use the LRSO to deliver regional strikes. And the LRSO has got a range of, of yield, so you could get the, the lower yield uh, potentially out of that. Uh, so they argue that we've already got these other capabilities. We can we can handle we can handle this particular requirement, but that that's not necessarily the case. In fact, when uh, asked about this, uh, uh, Chairman uh, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Milley, basically endorsed continuation of the Slickham, uh, and and he said, "quote Because of its distinct contribution." Okay, he said, "Because of its distinct contribution." for deterring regional nuclear attack. So what is its distinct contribution? Well, there's a few things, right? First of all, unlike other capabilities, uh, the, the and let me explain to the, to the listeners what we're talking about here. We're not talking about putting uh, uh, nuclear sea launch cruise missiles on our, on our ballistic missile submarines, right? Those are the ones we have about, we have 12 of them. We keep them out at sea, they're hidden, they don't move, they carry uh, the, uh, the Trident D5, uh, uh, submarine launch ballistic missile. So they, they would not have this mission. What we would do is we would load up uh, some portion of the um, attack submarines. We call them SSNs, right? Attack submarines. They would have, some portion of the attack submarine would carry uh, a, a, a nuclear silicon. It wouldn't be the entire submarine, right? Sure. Um, uh, 
just just to give you an idea, we um, we're building what's called a Virginia payload module, which fits into the new Virginia class attack submarine. That gives that submarine the ability to carry about 150 Tomahawk land attack missiles or cruise missiles, right? So they can carry a total of 150. If you loaded out only, say, maybe five or 10 of them to give them a, a nuclear capability and spread it out throughout the, uh, the fleet, you would, you would have an awesome capability, uh, a deterrent capability, while not placing a great burden on the Navy. And we'll, we'll, we'll circle back to that. So the, the first... That's just to, to let your, 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 your viewers or your listeners, I should say, understand that we're not talking about uh, building a whole other leg of the triad, right? This is not like, like GBSD. This, we're not building brand new submarines. We're not building a new bomber. We're just going to take a certain number of these sea launch cruise missiles and sprinkle them, if you will, on our existing attack submarines, okay? So what does that provide you? Well, first of all, it provides you a regional presence, right? These submarines are going to be out at sea or under, under the ocean in sure. the Indo-Pacific area or off the coast of NATO, right? You have an additional capability that now China and Russia has to reckon with, right? R Russia may think that, hey, they, they know where the, uh, the F-35s are located. They, they may know where our nuclear bombs are uh, in, in Europe are located. They may be tempted in a conflict to perhaps take them out. If they if they're if they're a submarine launch uh, uh, cruise missiles, which they don't which they can't target, then then that would make the uh, the Russian attack planners think twice. So it provides constant presence, right? And the presence sure. is important because you don't have to generate the forces. In 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 Indo-Pacom, for instance, you would have to send a B fifty two with cruise missiles into the region, right? Because they're not located there day to day, right? Yeah, and so that, that adds time to, well, to the equation. You mentioned force generation. And so one of the things is I've been working on, you know, you mentioned theater, nuclear nuclear weapons or tactical. I, I've been using the term low yield battlefield nuclear weapons to, to clearly distinguish exactly what these types of weapons are, are useful for. And one of the challenges for the United States and NATO is without a declared enemy in NATO, without a declared adversary, there is no, uh, there's no, you know, planning process that's underway. So we don't have off the shelf plans and therefore this slows force generation. And so, for example, the, the DCA mission, the dual capable aircraft, they, you know, for them to generate in 30 days, uh, would would be quite a challenging feat, you know. Now, ninety day window would be, uh, you know, more reasonable. And some, you know, people have told the those who would advocate disarmament have said, "Hey, listen, nothing's ever going to be a bolt out of the blue. We're always going to know that we're escalating, escalating." And and I guess I would argue that that's not what what history teaches us. And this goes back to your point that we would be ready. Uh, with slick them in, and you know we weren't ready. Uh, let's say World War One. That was a that war began unexpectedly and pretty quickly relative to the time. And then if you take World War Two, we were we were largely not you know expecting the the attack on Pearl Harbor. You know the invasion of Poland was somewhat unexpected. You know so things actually do tend to happen with bolts out of the blue. And so, therefore, the argument that we'll, we'll know well in advance that the Russians are going to do something, or even the Chinese, 
it, it's it's not a historical norm. And so your concept that we, we need ready forces that can match um, a nuclear strike, you know, let's say a demonstration strike, and you can, I've written some articles where we do the nuclear weapons effects, and we demonstrate that, you know, a 10 kiloton nuclear weapon detonated at about 600 feet uh, is, 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 you know, it's a zero fallout detonation because your, your fireball doesn't touch the ground. And if you do it in a remote area, you have very little damage and therefore you get a great demonstration without much, you know, without much damage. And then how does the U.S. respond to that? And with the current posture we're in, we're not well positioned to do that. We're not well positioned. We do have we do have some capabilities, right? We have the, the B sixty one bomb, but you have to be able to deliver it on that critical target. Uh, and uh, the problem is that the adversary gets a vote. They have air defenses, right? They can they they may believe that they can shoot down that aircraft before the bomb is delivered. The beauty about the sea launch cruise missile, as well as the the low-yield submarine-launched ballistic missile warhead is it's going to get to its target. The adversary is going to, going to figure that it's going to get to their target. The Russians, in fact, the, the Soviets, were really, really scared or apprehensive about our deployment of the Tomahawk uh, land attack missile nuclear during the Cold War. And oh, I yeah. You're right. Glickham, Glickham scared them to death. Glickham as well, right. So, so clearly, again, you know, uh, I, I, I understand... Um, let me let me put it this way: This the purpose of the slickum is not necessarily to hold specific targets at risk. Sure. Although, as you talk through it, that's the way the military commander is going to think about it. It's not about holding specific targets at risk, but it's about raising the level of risk to the adversary. Right? Sure, absolutely. Right. If he thinks that 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 uh, we can respond to any nuclear use, that provides deterrence. Right. That provides. The fear to attack because he knows that no matter how he uses nuclear weapons, the United States has a response and will respond, right? So what do you say about the argument where opponents of Slickamin say, well, we have other capabilities that can accomplish that mission that can do the exact same thing, can have the same effect as Slickamin, so therefore we don't need it. Right. So, so again, there are certain things that that Slickerman brings to the equation that these other capabilities don't. And we just spoke about presence, right? It's there all sure. the time. The other weapons don't. And for all the reasons we've just been talking about, that in and of itself, I think, is a good reason. But the second thing is it, it provides that presence with survivability, right? Ground-based systems, you forward deploy a bomber or, or a fighter at a fighter base, it's vulnerable to the enemy attack using ballistic missiles, right, or cruise missiles. The submarine is, is not vulnerable to that. So you get the presence and you get the survivability, right? Which is great. And then the third factor is it gives you that promptness, the promptness, right? If by the time you, you go, well, let's say you do manage to generate a bomber, right? It's going to take 10 or 12 hours probably to fly to, to the region and it can't stay in the air forever, right? It's got to it's got to you know refuel at some point. So you just you, you you can't rely on it to be there constantly. And if it lands in the region, then it's vulnerable to attack. If it has to return to the United States, then it's not available, right? So the, the advantage of the of the Slickum again is that it provides that 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 constant presence in a survivable way and, and a prompt response. And that 
that is that is sort of the the key to this program. But let me add one more thing that's really important. Or two more things that's really important that is not is not normally considered. First is the reassurance benefits, right? Reassuring our allies. I can tell you personally, having spoken to uh, our, our Asian allies as a, as a DASD, they were disappointed when we retired the TLMN back yeah. uh, in um, uh, at the end of the Cold War, right? Uh, they, they were disappointed by that. Uh, and a, a, as you know, there isn't the same NATO nuclear framework in Asia as there is in Europe, right? And so, and so they were disappointed that there was not this U.S. nuclear capability constantly plying their waters, providing that, that reassurance. And so for them, returning the slicker men into the region is a way of reassuring them that we are willing to run nuclear risks on their behalf, that we're willing to use nuclear weapons on their behalf. And that provides a non-proliferation benefit, right? Because sure, if they absolutely. lose confidence, if they lose confidence in the nuclear umbrella, then they may develop their own nuclear capabilities, right? So, absolutely. Right. But let, let me add what, one more one more reason that 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 is that is more of a macro general deterrence of geopolitical reason. That is, we have been we have been trying to address this this non-strategic nuclear or tactical nuclear problem for over 20 years now, Adam, right? The, uh, the Strategic Posture Commission led by Schlesinger and Perry back in 2008 was concerned about it. The New Star Treaty Resolution of Ratification in, in 2010 has specific provision that says you will now negotiate you know, uh, a, a reduction in these tactical nuclear weapons. They were concerned about it. The, uh, the Obama administration, even their nuclear posture review, said that these disparities could, could cause problems for strategic stability. Oh, we've been trying to get at this problem now for over 20 years. And if we don't grapple with it now, there's a couple of things that could happen. The adversary may think we're not serious about it, right? Or, oh. or the allies may think that, hey, these guys really aren't committed to our defense. Because the only reason you have the slickum, really, and 76-2 is not to defend the United States. It's not to deter attacks on the United States, although it does, but it's primarily to extend deterrence to our allies, right? To use it on behalf of our allies in the regions. If we don't fix this problem, if we don't fix this problem, then our allies are going to lose confidence in, our, in the nuclear umbrella and the adversaries are not going to think that we really mean it when we try to, you know, uh, to, to demonstrate resolve, right? Deterrence is, you can't just say deterrence. You can't just say, okay, well, we'll use an LRSO. You got to show it. By building the slickum, you're showing that you're committed, right? It, it, it reinforces your resolve. So you add up all those reasons, right? All those reasons that we've just been talking about. And at the end of the day, we came to the conclusion that um, on balance, it was important to have the nuclear slickum. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence.
And so one of the things that I always, you know, uh, whenever I was a younger man and uh, was working overseas, my uh, language was, was Russian. And I spent a lot of time in, in Eastern Europe. And one of the things that I came to think was that the Russians, sort of by dint of culture and otherwise, always looked for opportunities. They were, uh, you know, sort of opportunity seekers. And they were, would, would fill a gap if you created one. And my fear is that we are creating a tactical slash low-yield battlefield nuclear weapons gap that uh, the Russians fear or they think that they'll be able to, to put us in a fiat accompli. I mean, we hear recently the Lithuanians, you know, they shut down uh, the, you know, the land bridge that allowed Russians to, you know, to transit their territory, you know, in vehicles uh, to move supplies and other material to Kaliningrad. So th this was sort of a provocation by the Lithuanians. But you could, you could easily imagine that the Russians would see that as a provocation that would then lead to what you and I fear is, you know, a rationale to invade the Baltic states. And then as we're, you know, American forces are moving up through Suwaki and through the Suwaki Gap, there's a bright flash, you know, above that. It's a very rural highway that goes, you know, into Lithuania. There's a bright flash in front of NATO troops. NATO troops stop. And then we have, you know, we have an oh shit moment. And we say, well, what do we do now? And we, we don't have an effective response. And so, you know, I wonder what your take on this, on my concerns, perhaps, for the idea that the Russians will fill a gap if you create one. I, um, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think that I think they've already, they already understand <laughs> that, right? Which is why they're building all those tactical nuclear weapons, right? They, they see a gap between um, our um, very few low-yield so-called regional nuclear weapons and our strategic systems, right? And sure. they're taking advantage of that. Look, the New START Treaty is great for them, right? New START limits Absolutely. our strategic nuclear weapons and allows them to build their tactical nuclear weapons. I mean, I go back to what I said earlier. They have more tactical nuclear weapons than they're allowed strategic weapons on the New START. If for no other reason we should pursue nuclear silicon because it, it could bring them back to the negotiating table, right? If we threaten to, to, to deploy this capability, maybe they'll come back and, 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 and say, okay, you guys, uh, I understand, but we'll start getting rid of some of our tactical nuclear weapons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the history, I spent a, about a year and a half ago, I went to the Reagan library and went through the archives to, to understand the debates inside the White House over INF. Yep. And we're sort of at a point now where, where it's not really that different. The Russians then had a lot more uh, regional tactical weapons than we did. And by virtue of us putting Pershing II and Glickham in a, you know, in a region where they had very little response, it drove them to the table. And so we could potentially, I would think, uh, reach that again, but it'll take you know, quite a bit of resolve to do that. I think you're spot on. You got to have some leverage. If you can't have an arms control uh, agreement with the Russians to, to at least, you know, to capture their 
attack to nuclear weapons, you, you have to have something to, to bargain with. Absolutely. And, yeah, Sikkim could provide that. But, um, you know, before we run out of time, there, there's a couple of other things, that, uh, if I could just mention. Sure, go for it. One of the arguments that, that, that you're hearing, uh, especially from members of Congress um, uh, in, uh, in opposition to the Slickham, is that it's going to detract from the conventional mission of the SSNs, right? It, it, it's kind of a legitimate argument because we, we need those attack submarines to, uh, to fight the Chinese in the Indo-Pakam, right? It's going to be very important. Uh, and the submarines play a big role in the, in the NATO battle as well. But I think that the concern is overstated, right? Because we're not talking about taking, you know, these, these you know, 50 or 60 attack subs, taking half of them and, and making them nuclear, nuclear attack submarines. That, that's not sure. what we're trying to do. In fact, let me, let me this, is a, this is a quote by, again, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was asked this question uh, when he was before um, Congress this year. And, and his response was, uh, was, was, was as follows. He says, look, quote, there are 50 some odd attack subs in the system, right? He's referring to these SSNs, attack subs. What we are talking about is building or developing a piece of munition, an ammo. Granted, it's nuclear, but so the weapon itself wouldn't be necessarily on each of those subs. So some of those subs, a small percentage may have a mission change. The others would not. So I think it's a fair comment, uh, that is the criticism, but I don't buy that in terms of the overall argument, okay? So what, do you, what do you, we don't know yet what the concept of operations will be for the, for, for the TLAMN. And we can find a way that doesn't add uh, additional burdens upon the Navy. Again, the example I gave earlier was if you, if you can carry 150 cruise missiles, right? If you just put, say, 10, if you dedicate 10 of those tubes, to the nuclear mission, you sure. still have 145 conventional missiles. It, it, it doesn't necessarily have to impact the, the mission of the submarine. And of course, you, you have to, you have, there are different ways you operate a submarine yeah. when they have nuclear weapons on board. You've got a personal reliability program and you have to certify sure. part, but it's not the entire crew. There's a small contingent of, of uh, uh, officers and crewmen that handle the nuclear weapons and you can figure out a way to, to, to certify them in the same way that we already certify uh, uh, the, uh, the crews that operate the ballistic missile submarines. So I, I don't, I, I think the CONOPS I issue can, can be, uh, can be, um, can be dealt with. In fact, they asked, they asked the, uh, the, the same question of the chief of naval operations, Admiral Gilday, who again explained that this, this would be a burden on the Navy, but then he goes on to say, quote, it makes sense to me that we keep a small amount of money against research and development to keep that warm, referring sure. to the Slickham, uh, to keep it warm, uh, if you will, within the industrial base while we get a better understanding of the world we live in with two nuclear peer competitors. And this is a wonderful point because we don't know what's going to happen 10 years from now, Adam, sure. right? We're going to end up not, not just having to deter Russia, but having to deter China as well. We don't know what the implications are uh, for our de deterrent capability of the expansion of, of China's nuclear capabilities. In this sense, it's good to have the slick men as a capability that can hedge against nuclear breakout scenarios by both uh, Russia and China. It's not going to cost a lot of money to build a nuclear slick once we develop the capability. And we can, we, can, we can turn those out much quicker than building a new bomber or a new ICBM, right? Sure. Uh, 
uh, or, or even a new ballistic missile submarine? Well, you know, it's funny. So the FY23 budget, the, you know, the, the nuclear expenditure is expected to be about $35 billion, which in a budget of about $850 billion, this is, you know, less than 5% of the budget. And uh, uh, let me ask you, a, this is sort of a, a question you're going to just take a guess at. What do you think, I found this number a while back and I, I monitor it every year. What do you think the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Studies reports uh, is the waste, fraud, and abuse, uh, the annual waste, fraud, and abuse in Medicare and Medicaid each year? Any clue what you what that number is? I don't know what the number is, but I'm sure it's more than $35 billion. <laughs> it's about $70 billion a year. And I hear nobody throwing a fit, you know, to fix Medicare and Medicaid because we lose $70 billion a year to waste, fraud, and abuse. But yet we're told that the nuclear budget is just unaffordable. So it's, you know, it's an argument I don't buy. And so yeah. therefore the argument that Slickum is, you know, it, it takes away from other priorities. We can't afford it. it it's, you know, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not an argument I, I can, you know, really holds any water. Yeah. I think sometimes that, 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 that cost argument is made by people who, who normally uh, don't like nuclear weapons. Right. And so sure. it's just, a, it's just another excuse for, um, for doing that. But on the other hand, I will say that, um, when you're operating at the level of a secretary of defense and you're worried about, you know, the uh, the budget ac across the board, China is the pacing threat. Russia is a problem. We're now arming Ukraine. Uh, I can sympathize. I can sympathize sure. with the difficult decisions that have to be taken. Right. Sure. But on the other hand, you and I both know that we had a, uh, um, a nuclear holiday at the end of the Cold War. Sure. And for, for about 20 years, we spent only enough money only enough to sustain the current force, right? We, there was no modernization. And so, so now um, I, I feel like it's our turn, right? Sure. We, we, we need to spend the money. And, and I will say that, that I do believe that there is a bipartisan consensus, both within, within the executive branches and Congress, to fund uh, what, I, what I'm now calling the uh, Obama-Trump-Biden nuclear modernization program, right? Even Biden approved all the modernization except for the nuclear sea launch cruise missile and the B-83 bomb. So that's that, that suggests to me that, that that everybody gets it now, Adam, right? It's now time to, to modernize. The big problem now is, is with, with the advent of China's nuclear expansion, we have to ask the question, are we doing enough? And we didn't ask that question in that same way in the 2018 nuclear posture review because we thought we had a, an understanding uh, of China's nuclear growth. If we knew back then what we know today about China's uh, expansion, I think we, we may have reached some different conclusions, quite frankly. Well, that's a, that's a great uh, point to end on. And I tell you what, Rob, we're going to have to come back uh, again. We'll invite you back. And next time I want to talk about China. Because this is, you know, this is something where we really do need to spend a little bit of time to specifically talk about China, the threat, their modernization program. And, and I'd be really interested to know where you think we need to go to effectively counter and deter the Chinese. But we'll have to hold that for next time. So thanks, Rob. 
Again, everybody, Rob Super, who was the former DASD, who wrote the 2018 NPR and is a uh, one of the smartest new guys that I've known for many years and, you know, has been one of the the sound thought leaders in D.C. And uh, so thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Adam. Take care.